0: Pray with me. Lord God, your word is living and active. So it's our humble and sincere prayer this morning that your word would be brought to life in our own hearts and our minds this morning and that we'd be moved to action. We be moved as a church to a deeper sense of unity and an embrace of our diversity so that you're glorified not just here in Lansing but even in the nations. Lord, do that we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, according to National Geographic, no machine can match the feats performed by the human body every day. Just listen to some of these staggering statistics about the human body. Lungs suck in 70 quarts of air each minute during exercise. That's if you've maintained your New Year's resolution to exercise. Hearts pump 2,000 gallons of blood and beat some 100,000 times each day. More than 600 muscles keep us moving in every direction and a 100 trillion cells make up tissues which make up 10 major organ systems in our body. In a word, amazing. The body that God has made Is amazing. And while the body is one single unit or a whole, these stats remind us that the body is actually very complex and very diverse. It's made up of all sorts of different parts. Those stats just begin to scratch the surface on the diversity of parts in each of our own human bodies. So it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose the body, the human body, as the perfect picture for the church, what he calls the body of Christ throughout First Corinthians and also in Ephesians. So I invite you to turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians as we think together this morning about the unity and the diversity in the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Well, it's pretty impossible to miss the analogy between the physical body and the body of Christ, the church, that Paul is drawing in this passage. But I think it's certainly worth slowing down to think through this relatively familiar passage so that we don't miss the details, and so we'll also work toward applying its truth to our lives as a local church. So in verse 12, Paul begins by making this clear comparison between the human body and the body of Christ, the church. I just read from the NIV, but I think the ESV, English Standard Version, captures the comparison a little bit better. So just to drive it home in your minds, listen to it from the ESV. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, So it is with Christ. See the comparison? Just as, so also. At the risk of redundancy, my summary would be, just as the human body is one single unit with many diverse parts, so also is the body of Christ, the church, one unit but made up of many diverse parts or members. So the body of Christ according to Paul, is noted by both its unity and its diversity. So what exactly unites the individual members, the individual people in the body of Christ together? What unites us? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 13, where he says that our unity, it's grounded in, it's founded upon the fact that all of us have been baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. So the thing that unifies us together is our Holy Spirit baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is what unites us as a body of Christ. Now, We need to understand what Paul means by that. Well, he's not referring to our water baptism. We think about baptism, we often think about water baptism. I'm sure that you heard an announcement earlier this morning about the fact that if you have come to faith in Jesus and you don't know what the Bible teaches about baptism, you need to come to baptism class. That's water baptism. You, You should attend that class. But Paul's not talking about water baptism here. He's also not talking about some secondary experience of the Holy Spirit, as our friends the Pentecostals erroneously teach. No, the baptism of the Spirit that Paul is speaking about here is the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our conversions. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit at the time when we moved from unbelief to belief. When we converted from a non-believer to a believer in Jesus. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here. New Testament Gordon, New Testament scholar, sorry, Gordon Fee puts it this way: What makes the Corinthians one is their common experience of the Spirit. The Spirit is what essentially distinguishes the believer from the non-believer. We learned that back in. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit is what especially marks the beginning of the Christian life, according to Galatians 3. And the Spirit, above all, it is what makes a person a child of God, according to Romans 8. So it's natural for Paul to refer to their unity in the body in terms of the Spirit. This is great, because Fee is a Pentecostal himself, and he goes on to say the emphasis in this context is not on some sort of special experience in the Spirit beyond conversion, but their common reception of the Spirit at conversion. L- let me explain a little further. We need to remind ourselves that Christian conversion is by its very nature supernatural. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. You do all sorts of converting in your life. You might convert from one brand of vehicle to another. You might convert from drinking one type of soft drink to another. Or you don't convert, Pastor Duck. Stuck Mountain Dew guy, can't convert. When you make those sort of conversions, the car you drive, the drink you drink, you usually check out the specs, you try out the product, and you make a decision based on the facts, the performance, the preference, right? Now, to be sure, when we convert from unbelief to belief in Christ, we need the facts. We need the facts, the the word of the gospel. We need to know the good news about what Jesus has accomplished for us at Calvary. And the fact that he is the risen Lord who saves anyone and everyone who repents and believes. We need to know that. But we also need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to enliven the spiritually dead person to spiritual life. So as mysterious as that sounds to us, it's true that what unites us as Christians is the work of the Holy Spirit in our conversion. If you're here today and you have authentically turned from sin and trusted Jesus, you've repented and believed you are a Christian, you've been united to other people with that same experience because the Holy Spirit was at work in each one of you. And this unity that we have as a body, as a church, It transcends racial and ethnic differences. Jews and Greeks. It transcends socioeconomic differences. Slave and free. No longer are those sort of identity markers our primary identity marker. Now our identity is a member of the body of Christ, united to other Members, by the work of the Holy Spirit, at our conversion. Conversion is supernatural, and it unites us together. And yet, this unity does not obliterate diversity. To the contrary, Paul is trying to make the case that our unity is more effective, and it's more powerful because we are a diverse group of people he says that very clearly in verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. But Paul knows that there are enemies to cultivating this sort of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. And so he attacks two of them in the remainder of this passage. First he hits on inferiority, and then he touches on superiority. So we want to look at those in turn. If you look at verses 15 through 20, here Paul introduces the evil of inferiority with a series of almost nonsensical sort of statements, statements made by some body parts. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. And with these silly statements, Paul is suggesting that some body parts feel useless in comparison to other body parts. But this inferior feeling, this feeling of uselessness, it does not negate the fact that your ear is part of your body, whether it feels like it's part of the body or not. It's part of the body. And furthermore, Paul makes clear in verse 17 that the aim of the body is not absolute uniformity, He paints this picture of like the whole body as an eye, one big eye or one big ear or whatever. And he says, no, 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 no. A body by nature, by design, is diverse. There's all sorts of different parts. We need ears to hear and noses to smell and every other body part to do its job. That's how our physical bodies work. And even more important than the skill or the talent or the uh, value that each individual part brings to the whole I think Paul wants us to recognize that our physical bodies are made and designed by God himself. He says that every single part in your body has been arranged that way just as God wanted them to be in verse 18. So by God's design, a body is diverse. I learned about the the diversity of my physical body in a very personal way recently. As most of you know, I had shoulder surgery in October, and this left me in a sling for about five weeks. And so I had basically lost use of not just my shoulder, but my arm and my hand. And I could function, sort of. By God's grace, I'm making a good recovery, and I've regained use of my shoulder and my arm and my hand. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks to a great doctor for a good physical therapist. But in that time when I was in the sling, my body was not functioning properly as a unified and diverse whole. There were really essential things in life that I could no longer do, like pick up my kids. I have to thank my wife Rachel for literally bearing the burden of the boys for those months, right? And doggone it, I couldn't rake my leaves. But thanks to... Journey adult Bible community, see some of them in here, they came and raked my leaves for me. But my body wasn't functioning properly without the use of my shoulder and arm. So to say that my shoulder is useless, that's nonsense. I'll say that no longer. I know that each part has a role to play if I'm going to function properly. And Paul recognizes that in the church, some of us have inferiority complexes. We spend more time thinking about who we're not and what other people are than acknowledging the fact that we are part of the body, that God has designed us as a part of the body and that we have a role to play. We need to start recognizing that the body needs each and every one of us. And if each and every one of us aren't doing our part, then the body will not function properly. So inferiority, feelings of uselessness, they're an enemy to unity and diversity. That's not the only enemy. In verses 21 to 26, Paul elaborates on this other enemy, the enemy of superiority. In verse 21, Paul again gives voice to certain parts of the body to make his point. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In other words, no part of our physical body is better than or superior to any other. No part is self-sufficient. And to make his point, he goes on to defend some of uh, the less prominent parts of the body in verses uh, 22 Down through 24. He highlights the weaker parts, uh, which probably refers to our internal organs. Think about that. Our internal organs, they're weak, they're delicate, but they're obviously indispensable. We learned earlier how much we need our heart and our lungs to function. And the less honorable and unpresentable parts, well, those refer to our, our private, our sexual organs which as a measure of modesty are actually clothed as a gesture of honor. Some parts of our body are shown to be honorable by being adorned with clothes. Just because they're unpresentable doesn't mean they're not honorable and useful and necessary to the body. In other words, again, Paul is saying that every part of our physical body has value. And I learned this week that even the appendix... As value. Do you know that? In a 2013 article in The Guardian, U.S. surgery expert and Duke University professor Bill Parker said this about the appendix. Far from being an organ of evil, the appendix serves a very useful function by acting as a safe house for the beneficial bacteria in our bodies. In effect, the much-reviled organ is really a sanctuary for helpful microbes. The appendix is a storehouse, a cultivation center for the normal, beneficial bacteria that our gut needs. See? All parts of our bodies are valuable. So Paul's point to the Corinthians as a church, Paul's point to us as a church, is this. Self-sufficiency prideful feelings of superiority, have no place in the body of Christ. We need all the parts in order to avoid division and in order to cultivate equal concern for one another. You are no better than any other member of this body. You're not better than the students away on winter retreat. You're not better than the folks worshiping in the creative service superiority, self-sufficiency have no place in the body of Christ. Now, to be sure, this sort of unity and diversity comes with all sorts of costs and benefits. And Paul highlights two of those costs and benefits in verse 26. He says this sort of unity and this sort of diversity is going to result in a whole different level of Of suffering we're gonna bring suffering to a greater degree if we're really united and really embracing our diversity think about my shoulder again sometimes the pain in my shoulder would radiate down my arm and into my hand and even my fingers and thumb in other words though my shoulder had received the surgery my shoulder had been injured Other parts of my body suffered along with my shoulder. My shoulder didn't suffer alone. And Paul is saying, no member, no individual in the body of Christ should suffer alone. We suffer with someone. We feel one another's pain. We rejoice with those who rejoice, yes. But we suffer and weep with those who weep. But also it's true that unified and diverse body of Christ will experience joy to a whole new level as well. Think about the joy experienced by the NFL wide receiver whose legs and his eyes and his hands and his torso all work together to haul in this touchdown, this game-winning pass, And then what happens when he hits the end zone? This whole body victory dance, right? His whole body rejoices because all of the parts of his body work together to win the game for his team. Well, in the same way, the church ought to be characterized by whole body rejoicing. Rejoicing when new people come to faith. Rejoicing when sin is defeated in someone's life. Rejoicing when we accomplish a task together. Or rejoicing when we take the gospel to the nations. Unity and diversity. That ought to characterize our church. So inferiority and superiority have no place in the body of Christ. So what does all this have to do with becoming more missions-minded? You've been singing songs about missions this morning. You remember if you were here last week that Pastor Don uh, preached a sermon on becoming more missions-minded. And he tasked me with following up that message. So what does 1 Corinthians 12 have to do with global missions? I'm glad you asked. Before we get to the connection, let's just review what Pastor Don taught us last week. In basically a survey of the whole Bible, stopping in Genesis, Galatians, and Revelation, we were reminded that our God is a missionary God. He's a missionary God who desires to see people from every tribe and tongue and language come to worship Jesus as the Lord who saves. And he pointed out for us that Our God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. He made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 to bring the blessing of salvation to all nations. And then that promise was explained in Galatians 3, where Paul teaches that both Jews and Gentiles are recipients of the promise to Abraham by faith in Jesus alone. And then the promise will be ultimately fulfilled as we learn from Revelation 7. And it's there in Revelation 7 where you have this glorious picture of individuals from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, worshiping Christ for all eternity. That's the goal of our missionary God. And that's a goal that he will accomplish. That's a promise that he will keep. So again, what does 1 Corinthians 12 have to do with that? Well, bear with me for just a moment. According to Acts 1, which you heard read during the Scripture reading, Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. So to state the obvious, Jesus is no longer physically present with us here on this earth. But what he promised in Acts chapter 1 is crucially important. He promised to send the gift of his Spirit to indwell his people and empower those people to take the message of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, we learn that the Holy Spirit came. Baptized, you could say, a group of people, a diverse group of people there as they heard the apostle Peter preaching the gospel. And those people, when the gospel was proclaimed and the Holy Spirit was present, turned from their sin and trusted Jesus. And they were born into the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ was born where the Spirit was present and the gospel was proclaimed. So global missions is sort of a reiteration of Pentecost. Wherever and whenever the Holy Spirit blows and the gospel is proclaimed and people repent and believe, more members are added to the body of Christ. That's how God is fulfilling this great commission, this great task that you sang about earlier. The task, the commission command given by King Jesus to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing new converts and teaching them to obey everything that King Jesus commands. That is the task of the church, the spirit-indwelt, gospel-empowered church. Isn't it great that God, by his design, created a body of people that was unified, yes, but diverse enough to take this task to the nations. So let me be crystal clear about the connection between 1 Corinthians 12 and global missions. If you are a spirit-baptized member of the body of Christ, you have a role to play in making disciples of all nations. But for far too long, the body of Christ has been thwarted in its efforts to take the gospel to all nations because we're held back by our feelings of inferiority and uselessness and superiority and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Let's be honest. Some of us here today feel inferior to our cross-cultural missionaries. We say or think things like this. Well, because I'm not a church planter in Papua New Guinea or a campus minister over to MSU among the internationals, or a seminary professor in Indonesia, I'm not a necessary part of the global mission of the church. I think Paul says to that, I say to that, nonsense. You're a part of the church. And so you have a part in the task of reaching the nations with the gospel. So it's high time that we start doing our part. We start Stop harboring feelings of uselessness and inferiority. God has appointed you to be a part of this grand task. But on the other hand, some of us need to be honest about the fact that we feel superior or self-sufficient in the tasks of global missions. In moments of arrogance or pride, you might think things like this. Well, I don't know what the deal is with those folks at South Church. They're kind of slow on the uptake on the call to global missions, but I've got a big pocketbook, and I'll I'll just write big checks and send missionaries to field, and I'll do my part. And... That's not the view of a unified and diverse approach to global missions. Or some of you might have come back from a short-term mission experience, and you're all fired up. You know terms like the 1040 window, and you're all geeked about unreached people groups, and you think to yourself, well, why do I need those people at South Church? Why why would I want the guidance of my uh, pastors or the support of my fellow church members? I'll reach the world for Christ, and I'll do it alone. I'll do it alone if I have to. Well, that sort of self-sufficient, arrogant, superior attitude, it has no place in the church. The Great Commission will not be fulfilled by lone rangers. It's going to be fulfilled by the body, the unified and diverse body of Christ. And so today, as last week, and as you heard earlier from Larry Krauss, you have an opportunity, a real tangible way to fight inferiority and superiority and to start living as a unified and diverse body with a goal of reaching the nations for Christ. As you heard, the mission board is beginning to form missionary support teams. And it's our hope that every missionary that we support has a team behind him or her or them. And it's our hope that every single member of this church will be part of one of those teams. And on those teams, which are made up of people like you, diverse people like you, you will start to do things like this together. Pray more regularly for missionaries. Communicate more intentionally to our missionaries. Provide transportation or housing or meals to our missionaries when they're here in Lansing. Give more generously to missions. Maybe even visit missionaries out on the field so you get a taste for what the Lord is doing in some diverse part of the world. Maybe to be an encouragement to them in a really challenging place or time in their ministry. And we pray that as more and more members of this church get on board with missionary support teams that God, by his grace, would raise up more missionaries from our midst. Because some of you are called to pray, and some of you are called to give, and some of you are called to go. I began this sermon with some stats about the amazing human body. Let me close with some stats about the status of global evangelization. These are according to the Joshua Project, a missions organization that collects data about areas of the world that haven't yet been reached with the gospel. Three numbers, three numbers. 16,600, 7,150, and 2.84. Maybe you want to write those down or commit those to memory. 16,600, 7,150, and 2.84. Let me explain. 16,600, that is the number. Of people groups, what the Bible calls nations or ethnic groups, 16,600 people groups in the world today. Unique people groups. Second number, 7,150. That's the number of people groups out of those 16,600 that are still unreached with the gospel. Unreached meaning less than 2% of the people in that group have come to saving faith in Jesus. 7,150 people groups. And then the last number, 2.84. That's 2.84 billion. 2.84 billion people, individuals. Souls of those 7,150 people groups that don't know Jesus, that are on their way to a Christless eternity in hell because they don't know the good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the grave. They don't know what it means to repent and believe because no one's told them. Those are staggering, heartbreaking. Statistics, aren't they? 2.84 billion people unreached. But take heart, because our Lord has a plan. And his plan and his promise is to reach members of each of those people groups for his glory and their eternal good with the gospel. Our God is a God who keeps his promise. And our God has a plan to carry out that promise. And his plan is body of Christ, the church, you. So I think a tangible way for you to get on board, to start playing your part, is to join a missionary support team today. You've got the handout in your worship folder. I encourage you to fill that out and drop it to the table in the concourse or to an usher on the way out and start playing a role. You might not know what part you are to play, but by God's design, you're a member of this body. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for bringing us into your body, the church by your grace. Thank you for empowering us and dwelling us with your spirit so that we could take this good news to others who haven't yet heard it. Help us, Lord God, to do our part in this wonderful and glorious task that you will complete for your glory, for our good, and for the good of all people everywhere, we pray in Christ's name.